There's a, a famous quote by Henry Ford that says, whether you think you can or not, you are right. I think that's a, it's a mindset that we as Americans seem to have perfected, but it's a mindset that's really built into to all people. That the outcome, my success or failure, my happiness or lack thereof, is all dependent upon me. Am I, do I have the willpower? Do I have the strength? Will I have the mindset that I can do it? And if I can, then I'll get it done. I can do anything. But I want to tell you that spiritually, that mindset kills. We looked at it over and over again in Galatians that the law taught us through the children of Israel that that we can't live up to God's perfection. It doesn't matter what my mindset is, whether or not I think I can do it, I can't do it. So unless you're delusional, you somehow think that you're better than everyone else, or you don't understand what God's perfection is, then if you have that mindset about everything else in your life, that if, if I put my mind to it, I can get it done, and you carry that into your spiritual life, it's going to destroy you. Because you can't do it. Which, that leads to one of the other things that we're all great at. Making excuses. I would do it, but I would serve God, but I have another great quote. I've, I've seen it attested to Ralph Waldo Emerson and a few other people, but it doesn't matter who says it, it's good. It says, excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. I was reading an interesting article this week on excuses. It said that people can be incredibly creative when it comes to thinking of excuses. We often use them to get out of situations that seem difficult or unpleasant or sometimes causing us fears and anxieties. Each and every one of us has done it in one way or another in every aspect of our lives. Although they might be appropriate in certain moments of our lives, excuses are one of the worst things you can do to yourself. Thus they should be avoided by all means. You make excuses when it comes to eating healthier, exercising, or getting that promotion you really want. Sometimes you make excuses to not be nice with the people around you. But much more important than our diet or our exercise, we make excuses in our spiritual life all the time. We're really good at excusing away our own sin. And we can always find excuses to not serve God. I'm not good enough. I don't know my Bible well enough to do that. People don't look up to me like that. I get scared if I'm put in that situation. You know, the most famous example in the Bible of an excuse maker is Moses. 
in Exodus 3 and 4. If you would turn with me to Exodus, we'll just... So the beginning of Exodus 3 is when Moses is out in the wilderness and he comes across the burning bush and God commissions him to go free his people from Egypt where Moses has left. And Moses over the next chapter or so, chapter and a half, comes up with five or so excuses. But I think the first one is the most interesting because of God's reply. Exodus 3.11, Moses says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, he's basically telling God, you don't know what you're doing in asking me to do this. You don't know me, God. That's not the job for me. God answers him in 3.12 and says, and he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. But God's basically telling him, Moses, it's not about you. It's about who I am. None of your excuses mean anything because of who I am. But that's the problem with our excuses. It takes the focus off of who God is and it puts it on me. That's not where the focus needs to be. It needs to be on God. There's a really famous quote by A.W. Tozer that says that when what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That line from Knowledge of the Holy is, is an important line. But I think it's interesting later on in that, that passage, he says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And this is what I thought is really interesting. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And so if your image of God is someone who is weak or isn't faithful or may or may not love you, then that's going to decide your action. If you're putting the focus on you, God cannot reveal himself to you and therefore your view of him is small. As I have said, we end up making ourselves our own God. We replace our image of him with ourselves. And so our big idea today is we're going to be looking at the story of Ehud and Shamgar, two stories, is that a proper view of who God is leaves no room for excuses. A proper view of who God is leaves no room for excuses. And we're going to see that through these stories. When we looked at the first apostasy of Israel last week, when Israel cried, up to God, cried out to God, God raised up Othniel. And when he raised up Othniel, if you remember, Othniel was the nephew of Caleb. 
He had the lineage. He probably looked like a leader should look. It's like an old Western movie. God sent John Wayne into the town to, to clean up the streets. He looked the part. He fit the bill for what a leader of Israel should look like. But if you remember that God left these nations in the land after Joshua and his generation died so that he could test future generations of their faithfulness to him and so that he could teach them in warfare, which basically meant he wanted to teach them to wholly depend upon himself. And so after they leave him once and he raises up Othniel and gives them 40 years of rest, they turn around and they leave God again. And so this time he's going to take a different tact. So raising up someone who looks the part didn't work. Instead of John Wayne, this time I'll, I'll send them Mr. Bean and see how that works out. We learn here that reliance upon God removes the burden from us and put it where it belongs, on him. When the burden is on him, we cannot make excuses. A proper view of who God is leaves no room for excuses. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through, verse 12 down through verse 31 today. The first couple of verses are just sort of introductory verses that set the story, verses 12 through 14. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went out and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of palm trees, of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. A few things to bring out from this. First, I think it's an interesting side point here. Um, I said, if you look at, you can look at the book of Judges or even the children of Israel as a, a model for our spiritual lives and what, what not to do, basically. But if you look at these things, there are many times throughout their stories where the things in the past come back to bite them later. And it's an important spiritual truth that God, when he forgives our sins, they're as far as the east is from the west. But when we are straying from fellowship with him and we are disobeying him, sometimes he allows those things that we have sown in the past to come back and rear their head. So here we see the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amicalites. King Eglon of the Moabites has gathered up these other two people groups. Well, the Moabites... And the Ammonites were both descendants of Lot. Abraham wasn't supposed to take Lot with him. God told him to leave his family. He took his dad and he took his nephew Lot. Well, farther on down the story, Lot commits an atrocious sin and has two daughters by his, or two sons by his two daughters, and those two sons grow up to be the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And then you have the Amicalites, who are the descendants of Esau. Interesting, I, a couple months ago, I went to this pastor's conference in Dallas, and one of the, the whole conference was on the book of Genesis. 
And one of the sessions was entitled The Dysfunctional Family in Genesis. And this guy I was sitting next to said, well, who do you think the dysfunctional family is? And it took me a minute because I went through them. All of them? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> but here you see some of those things from the past coming back around. And, and God is using these peoples to punish the children of Israel. And when it says here that they that they possess the city of the palm trees, that's the city of Jericho. The city that was Joshua and Israel's through God's power, their first major victory in the promised land. And it has now fallen to these foreign invaders. Another important note here when we look at our lives spiritually is you notice the first time when God raised up Cushian Rishathaim that they served him for eight years and here they serve Eglon for 18. That's not a pattern we want to repeat in our lives. That if we make a mistake that we repent and we come to God with our mistake and that if we make another one we don't fall deeper as we will see the pattern with the Israelites through this book. Now as we get to first, first, verse 15, I have our first point here, which is to be available for God to use you. Be available for God to use you. I'm going to look at in this point, verses 15 through 26, and I'm going to bump Shamgar up, verse 31, into this section. Let's look at verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So Jericho was in Benjamin's territory. So as we go through the book of Judges, it's not unusual. It was more unusual last week when we looked at Othniel was from sort of the opposite side of where they were attacked from. But this is more the typical pattern you see as a judge is raised from each of the tribes that it was where these people had invaded to that God raised up a judge. Even though as we get to the end of Judges, we see that the Benjamites might have been the worst of all the tribes in their departure from, from God and the sin that they were entrenched in. But nevertheless, God raises up Ehud from the tribe of the Benjamites. Now, it says here that he was a left-handed man. Interesting. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was left-handed. He was born in 1908. And so when he went to school, they made him learn how to write with his right hand. You just didn't, you didn't function as a left-handed person in the world. My sister was left-handed, which meant we always had to make sure we sat on the right side of each other at dinner or we'd be bumping elbows the whole time. But that's not what the text is getting at here. That Hebrew phrase here for a left-handed man literally means he had no use of his right hand. And so we don't understand how or why, but somehow Ehud was crippled in his right arm. Whether it was from birth or an accident or whatever. And you think of the 
the hardships that people with a disability have now, I mean, in their culture, they would have had no standing, no place. It would have been very hard to go through life as a person with a disability. And it is an interesting disability for a Benjamite. Benjamin means son of my right hand. And here he is, a Benjamite, with no use of his right hand. And this is who God chooses to raise up as a deliverer. Jump ahead to verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Let's look at at who Shamgar was. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. The name Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. Scholars now think it may have been a Hittite name or a Hurrian name. This doesn't automatically mean that he was a Canaanite. Because God used them to save his people, it's more likely that he was the product of a mixed marriage. As we've seen, God commanded the children of Israel over and over again, when you go into the land, you don't make covenants with them, you don't intermarry, and yet that's exactly what they did, and that's what led to serving their gods. And so he may have been the product of a mixed marriage One of the reasons some people think that he was a Canaanite was that Anath was a Canaanite goddess. Um, Others think that his name... So when you read it in the Hebrew, instead of saying son of Anath, the the word Ben, so you see Benjamin, Ben means son of. Uh, So his name was Shamgar Ben Anath, Shamgar son of Anath, that it may have just meant that he was warlike like the goddess Anath. Or he could have been a Canaanite that came as a proselyte into the Hebrew faith. But whatever his background, whomever, God used him. This unknown, this person that we don't give any background on other than a non-Hebrew name. And so in these stories we have, on one hand, a, a crippled guy. And on the other hand, a guy that doesn't even have a Hebrew name. And you look how far we've gone from Othniel, the, the nephew of Caleb. We've gone from this great lineage to someone that no one would ever regard because of his right arm being useless and this other man who who doesn't even sound like a Hebrew. Let's go back to the story of Ehud. We'll look again at the, the second half of verse 15. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him, by Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. So as a conquered people, the children of Israel, the Israelites had to pay a tribute probably yearly to this King Eglon. And evidently that was Ehud's job. It's nowhere in the text, but I read one commentary that supposed that possibly because of his injury he wouldn't have been good for working the fields or raising animals or certainly not as a warrior. And so maybe he was like a bean counter and they had put him in charge of this job. And so every year he had to go take this tribute to the king. Whether or not that's the case, we see here at this point in time, he is taking the tribute. Verse 16, Ehud made himself a sword which had two inches, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. 
So a, a cubit is about 18 inches. So he makes himself this 18 inch double edged dagger sort of sword. And he binds it to his leg. We're not given any specifics about exactly what it means when it said that God raised him up or what instruction we can give him, what instruction God had given him. But we see here that he is preparing himself for what is to come. We'll get to it a little bit later, but with each of the, the judges, the implication is that it's, it's God's spirit that empowered them. That that was when you see that he was raised up, that it was God's spirit had come upon him and so that has happened, and now Ehud is making this sword. Verses 17 through 19. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a, a very fat man. His name actually means, Eglon means fat ox. I'll take a, a, a pause here from the, the text. Just a, a side spiritual note, as we, as we look at this these stories and I think looking at it as the, the whole of this downward spiral of, spiral of Israel and if you look at you know in Romans 6 16 Paul says that if you're giving yourself to something to obey it you're the slave of that and so are you going to be the slave of righteousness or of, of sin and as we looked at last week that as one of the ways that God punishes is he hands them over to their sins that if you want to worship their gods have at it all back out and you just see what happens and they fall subject to these foreign kings and their gods and terrible things happen so as you look at this our slave can be we can be sins you know to be slaves to our sin in bondage to our sin and Eglon was a very fat man because every year the Israelites were bringing him a portion of everything they grew, of all of their money, of their livestock. And so he had food and money and he didn't have to work. And so his size is a reflection upon Israel fattening him up with their hard work. Like our flesh, if we are not dedicating ourselves to the spirit, we're feeding the flesh and it grows and it grows and it becomes harder to conquer. Okay, back to the, the passage. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence, and all who attended him left. And so we see he's, he's brought the tribute, he's dropped it off. He leaves with the others with him, and he gets to Gilgal, where there are these idols to the gods of the Moabites. If you remember Gilgal in the book of Joshua, when they get to the Jordan River, the Jordan River is flowing hard and they have no idea how they're going to get across it into the promised land and like God split the Red Sea he stopped the Jordan River and the people of Israel crossed and then before the Ark of the Covenant came out of the river God told Joshua take 12 stones out of the river take them to where you camp set them up as a monument so that the people will always remember that I 
stopped the river for you to come in. That place was Gilgal, outside of Jericho. And not only that, the children of Israel consecrated themselves to God there. This new generation that had come up, that had taken over after the generation that wandered through the wilderness passed away, that is where they consecrated themselves to God. And so we're not sure exactly what happened here, but maybe Ehud has this plan in mind and he makes this sword and he delivers the tribute and he doesn't fall through and he, he starts to leave and he sees this, this evidence. It's like a, a smack in the face to God of these idols at this place, this holy place for them with the, the stones from the Jordan River and this place of consecration. And so he turns around and he goes back and he tells him, I have a, I have a secret message for you. We're going to be focusing more on the spiritual aspects of the story, but there are a lot of places in Judges where we see things that aren't pretty. This is, this is one of those places. So Ehud comes to him in verse 20. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And so, I mean, it's, it's hot there. And they would have these covered places on the roof where with the breeze blowing and in the shade, it would be much cooler than in the house. And so that's where Eglon tells his servants to be quiet and they all go away and they, they go to his roof chamber where they're alone. And it's interesting, he tells them that this message is for him from God. And it's well understood that the, the children, the people in Canaan, while they never left their gods, they they knew the stories of what the God of the Israelites had done to all these major cities and what he had done through Joshua and these other stories. And so there was some reverence for him, even though they didn't worship him, especially not him alone. And also remember the Moabites were descendants of Lot. And so there were aspects of their religious culture that while it wasn't in worship to the one true God, it, it was similar to some of the things the Hebrews did. And so he was interested. What is this message from your God? The message was not a happy one. <laughs> Verses 21 and 22. Ehud stretched out his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. So the big thing to see here is that God used this disability to his advantage. First of all, someone with a disability like that, with a, an arm that wouldn't work, would have been thought to not have been a danger. That probably the only reason he was left alone with the king is that he was a cripple. And even if they had checked him, they never would have checked his left thigh for a weapon. But since he didn't have use of his right hand, that was where he put it. Continue on here, verses 23 through 26. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious 
But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. And it, it's, it's graphic. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I mean, you see the way that, again, that God has worked through Ehud. But what he has done here is he has humiliated this king. Yes, God raised this king up to punish Israel, but he has ruled over them for 18 years and set up idols to his gods and gotten fat off of the children of Israel and oppressed them. And so God then uses this crippled man to absolutely humiliate him. And when you see those details in there, that's what it, that's what it does. I mean, even conservative scholars will acknowledge that a lot of these narratives in the Old Testament weren't meant so that you could make an exact replication of what happened. It's God's inspired word, so everything in it is true. I believe these are absolutely true stories, but that wasn't just the point of writing it. It was so future generations could look. And this story to them would have been important because of all those details he gives, gross as they might be, would have been a story for them about how their God humiliated this king who had ruled over them. Real quick, bring up this idea of, I, I've heard both sides of it, and I think both sides are convincing, but is this the way God planned it? If he raised up Ehud, and Ehud went to the people, and he said, follow me, God is with us, and he attacked them in war, would he have won outright because of God raising him up, or did God raise him up to do this? I don't have a, this isn't a, an answer that I would fight over, but we never see God correcting him, and we see God working through even the details of this story, like the smells that would have occurred leading to their servants not coming to check on him. And God working through these details and the way it humiliated this king and who he was doing it through, I see this as Ehud following the Lord's plan. It's interesting we look at the idea that each of these judges was raised up by the Spirit. Isaiah eleven twelve calls the spirit the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength. The word of the strength there can also be courage. Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In that passage in Isaiah, it's talking about Jesus who was able to fulfill each one of those perfectly because he was without sin. And the judges never did that, but the, the spirit doesn't change. And so this is, he's giving wisdom and knowledge and courage and he who showed those things. He used what he had to accomplish God's purposes. And God used the lowly to humiliate the exalted king. While we're still looking at being available to serve, let's go ahead and, and jump back up there to verse 31 and, and look at Shamgar again. It says, After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. 
and he also saved Israel. Now, it says after him there. Most people believe that this occurred, we'll get to it in a minute, after Ehud's final victory, God gives 80 years of rest. And so we have an 18-year an period, or 98-year period, 18 years under Eglon, and then 80 years of rest. And so most people assume that this story with, with Shamgar occurs sometime during that 98-year period because we don't see the same telltale signs of the, the uh, cycle starting over. You don't see the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You don't see the children of Israel crying out. You just see that, that God also raised up Shamgar. And Shamgar takes an ox goad, which would have been a long stick that was literally for goading ox. It had a pointy thing at one end and sort of a hook at the other. And he uses it to kill 600 Philistines. We're not told where they were or if this happened all at one time or if this is like guerrilla warfare with the Philistines and he's coming and going and, and killing them. But, but either way, God has used him this unknown, this person we know almost nothing about, without a Hebrew name, without a lineage, we can draw back to one of the tribes. And he uses him to defeat the Philistines. It says he also saved Israel. So we see from this, these aren't, these aren't people that anyone before these things happened, at least that we know of with Shamgar, but especially Ehud, they, they wouldn't have been looked up to or admired. But he was available. Available to serve God. There's a great saying about serving God that says it's not ability, but availability. It's not about you or what you think that you can bring to the table. We watch a lot of kids' movies in our house as you might guess. And some of my favorites always are the Toy Story movies. I'm especially partial to the first one because that came out when I was 13. Um, but they're all good. Recently, we've been watching a lot of Toy Story 4. And in it, I think, is one of the funniest lines in all the movies. There's this character named Duke Kaboom. And Duke Kaboom is like the Canadian evil Knievel. But he was never a very good toy, and so his owner threw him away, and he's always sad about that. And the, the other toys need him to do a job, and he refuses because he doesn't think he can do it. And the one toy says to him, so we don't need you to land there, we need you to crash there. Crash like only you can crash. Be the Duke Kaboom you are right now. And this is, I think it's the funniest line because he's Canadian. He says, yes, I, Canada. <laughs> and it just always struck me funny. But I think that's, we look at, oh, I'm not there yet spiritually. I, I can't do that. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God can do. Be who you are right now, but be it in the service of God. Be available for God to use you. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then yes, I can. Our second point we'll look at quickly is verses 27 through 30, and that's, it's to lead by example. 
Lead by example. Verse 27, it came about when he had arrived, this, we're back to Ehud here. He has killed Eglon, escaped the Sirah. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, pursue them. For the Lord has given your enemies to the Moabites, your, your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at the time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day until under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. You know, there are many people who are willing to serve God. But when you look at the number who are willing to lead, that number goes down a lot. In my previous ministry, one of my jobs was to try and develop leaders. And I found that generally there were three kinds of people. You had people that wanted to lead and they were the, the, the smallest of minorities. Coming across those was a rarity. You had people who were willing to lead but were hesitant. Still a minority but bigger. But then you have this group that's unwilling to even consider leading. And that is by far the vast majority of people. You know, leading is hard, especially spiritually in a spiritual setting because we're just sinners trying to get other sinners to follow us. And it's not easy. But we don't see that fear from Ehud of, I, I may have been able to do that, but, but God, you really think they're going to follow me as a, a man without use of my right arm? Well, I'm just this lowly guy. I'm not a warrior. I'm not this. I'm not that some of the, the fears and the things we see from other judges. We don't see that fear in him. We see a determination to lead them and to finish the job that God has put before them. And in doing so, Ehu does not point to himself or what he has done. And it wasn't that I went there and I killed that guy and because of that, you can follow me. He points to what God has done and will do. Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. It's all about what God is doing. And interestingly here, I think that they know that God is with them because that it was Ehud that killed the king. When they look at Ehud, they see this crippled man. Like, man, if God could take out a king with that guy, he must really be with us. And I think that's important that we, we acknowledge that we aren't perfect or great and that's not what it takes to lead because it's all about God. Like in a human setting, I think one of the most interesting things that occurred to me this week about that idea is you look at the, the great sports stars that have tried to coach and were never able to. I had a whole long list, but I'll focus on one. Wayne Gretzky, I grew up a hockey fan in L.A., Wayne Gretzky was my, I mean, he got traded there when I was 11. I'm all-time fan. Love him. But then he tried to coach and he failed miserably. 
And the reason he said is because for him, he expected his players to be able to do the same things that he did. Well, he was an otherworldly talent. There was, you know, very few that ever possessed anything close to what he had. It was all about him. I could do this, why can't you? If you're trying to lead people, whether it's in your job or at church or anything else, and you're pointing towards yourself, you're going to get nothing but resentment and people that won't follow. But here in the church and the places that God has given you an opportunity to lead, if you point to him, people will follow. And that's what we see here with Ehud. If you're a gifted person, you need to point to God as the source of those gifts. And if you're like me, inspire God because God, inspire others that God uses even you. Lead by example. So come to our conclusion, I want to read something else from that article I read about excuses. It says, you need to understand that the more you use excuses, the harder it will be to get things done. They become your new reality. One where you are too afraid to try or simply too lazy to do something. And I mean, spiritually, how true is that? If I'm looking at myself, I'm looking at my failures and my failures become my forefront and I'm putting myself first and ignoring God and then I, I'm never gonna accomplish anything. Goes on to say, if you want to achieve happiness in your life and feel good with yourself, you need to stop with the excuses and start doing things instead. No matter how difficult they might be at the moment, some things need to be done before it's too late. And so that's obviously from a humanistic point of view that this idea that if we stop the excuses, it will allow you to get things done, which will make you feel good about you, make you happy, you accomplished or whatnot. Again, that takes us back to the idea of it's all about us, but we as believers in Jesus Christ, children of God who have his spirit, that spirit of wisdom and courage, fear and knowledge. We know that we can reply, rely upon God. Therefore, we have no room for excuses in our lives. He has proven his faithfulness in the past and he will continue to be faithful. Remember that quote by Tozer, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what is your mental image of God? See the God who created all things? The God who called Abraham out and made him a great nation? The God who rescued Israel from Pharaoh? The God who handed the promised land over to the children of Israel? The God that remained faithful even when Israel didn't? The God who could rescue Israel even using someone like Ehud? or Shamgar. It doesn't matter what your weaknesses are, what your past is, or how others view you. It's who God is. Second Corinthians 3.5, it says, it's not that we're adequate. We're adequate because of who God is. Our adequacy is from God. God proved over and over with the children of Israel and he made a point of that in these stories here. That it's all about him. He used a cripple and an unknown to deliver Israel to put the emphasis on himself so they could not look to themselves but be forced to acknowledge his greatness. 
again, if excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure, how do we avoid building that house? What should our attitude be? As we look to who God is, to who's his faithfulness, I think it always has to start with, he's not only the God of Israel and all the great things he did in the Old Testament, but he is the God who loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus for us. The God who has redeemed us through the blood of his own son. The God who has empowered us to new life by giving us his spirit. And because of that, because of that our attitude should be not excuses because of who I am, but use me, God. Use me for your glory. The attitude we, we have can be summed up in Isaiah 6, 8. And this, when I was in elementary school, every day we would line up the whole school. I went to a small Christian school. And uh, every day we would all line up in our, with our grades and we would do the, the Pledge of Allegiance and the Pledge to the Bible and then the principal of the school every day, she was there from long before I got there to long after I was there. She would call out to the whole school whom shall I send and who will go for us? And as a school, we would all reply, here I am, send me. That's not an attitude of excuses. That's an attitude of God, you are who you are. Use me. Take that to heart. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but God wants to use us.